We started talking a couple weeks ago about the parables of Jesus. Um, certainly some of my favorite literature in the Bible, maybe yours too. I love the book of Proverbs. I love the parables. I love those stories that Jesus told, and I love how they cut to the heart. And I love how you can read it um, today and learn something and be convicted of something. You can read it in 10 years, and God can show you something else. Amen? I mean, the Holy Spirit just works through those stories in amazing ways. And so that's really what we're doing in this series called Shift, is watching Jesus as he works to cause a paradigm shift, a tectonic spiritual shift in our hearts and help us to see the way that God sees. A few years back, this was in the state of Tennessee. Um, somebody at a garage sale bought what turned out to be an original copy of the United States Declaration of Independence. How about that? $2.40. And that was back in 2007, original copy of the Declaration of Independence. One of my favorite garage sale treasure stories, though, is, um, is the story in Las Vegas, Nevada. Somebody had a garage sale, and for $5, they were selling five, um, five paintings, right? And this businessman from from Great Britain happened to be in town with the garage sale, thought the paintings looked cool, dropped down five bucks, and, and took those paintings back to England with him. Uh, and you know what? The paintings really were worth only five dollars. So what's the point of the story? Well, he took the paintings, or at least he took one of the paintings, uh, to get it reframed. And in the process of reframing the painting, they found something underneath. They found a sketch that turned out to be an Andy Warhol sketch. Um, one of his first, I'm sure, because he was 10 years old when he sketched Rudy Valley, a 1930s uh, musician. And it turns out that sketch, so the paintings were worth five bucks, but that sketch was worth $2 million, right? Um, <laughs> sometimes a lapse in judgment um, sometimes uh, poor judgment or, or lack of discernment about the value of things can be very costly, can be very expensive. I'm sure that person in, in Las Vegas would love to have that back and be pretty much set up for the rest of, of their life, you know. Um, well, Jesus, like I said, he came to shift priorities. He, he came to help us judge the real value of things, the value that is beneath the surface, the value that you have to look a little harder to see, the value that requires spiritual eyesight, if you will. And that's what he's trying to do as he tells us these parables. He helps us see what God sees. And, and it's expensive if you don't make the shift that Jesus calls you to make. Um, you see, uh, a couple of things will happen for sure if you don't. Number one, you will end up wasting your short life on things that really don't matter all that much. Um, the second thing that will happen is that you will live a life where you miss out on encountering the heart of God. And so Jesus invites you, invites me to make the shift, and he, he tells us it'll be worth our while if we do, all right? Well, 
this is a question. Before we get into the text this morning, um, we're going to look at another text really quickly just to answer or help begin to answer a question. How do parables work? What is it about a Holy Spirit-powered story, really very short stories, that help us and originally help those who heard them the first time make this tectonic spiritual shift? Um, and, and to answer this question... Think about King David for a second. You know King David. You've heard of David, king of Israel. And, and you, you, no doubt if you've heard of David, you remember the most famous slash infamous episode in David's life. He's king in Jerusalem. His army is off fighting a war, right? So there he is. And you, know, you remember the story. He looks out his window and he sees this amazingly beautiful woman, Bathsheba, and she is taking a bath on her roof. David sees her. David wants her. David has one of his men bring her to the palace. I mean, he knows her husband's not around. Her husband is one of his top commanders, Uriah. And so he has Bathsheba brought to the palace and they um, sleep together. Now, if this wasn't already kind of not exactly a plan that was God honoring, it gets even worse because, whoops, turns out she's pregnant as a result of them sleeping together. So what is a bad and and desperate spiritual situation gets even darker, right? Um, So David comes up with with a plan. Um, It's not much of a plan, it, it's not a, 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 a good plan, but it's a plan. And that is, let's bring Uriah back from the battlefield. So Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, comes back very quickly after, after she finds out that she's pregnant. Bring Uriah back um, because, I mean, come on. You know, you've been away at war with the guys, and she is incredible, and surely there'll be some sparks, a little romance, a little candlelight dinner, and then Uriah sleeps with his wife, all is good, because then he thinks it's his baby. Only (laughs) Uriah says, no, no, I'll sleep on the doorstep in front of our house, I'll say hi to my wife, but we're not going to hook up. Because my men, my comrades, they don't have this luxury. They're not getting to see their wives and their kids. They're not here in Jerusalem. So no, I won't. So much for plan A. Then it's plan B. Things are getting progressively worse in this episode. Now David figures he has no option but to have Uriah killed. So he writes up an order to have Uriah sent to the most dangerous part of the battle where the hottest fighting is. Then everyone around Uriah will pull back and Uriah will be killed. He seals it with the royal seal, sends it with Uriah to the commander of the forces, and it works, right? It works. You remember. Uriah is um, stranded in the front lines where the fighting is most fierce. He is killed. And David albeit um, badly and sadly, um, but David has seemingly gotten himself out of this mess. Do you remember Do you remember how God ends up getting inside David's heart 
a story, right? A story. There's this prophet who's a good friend of David's, a guy named Nathan. Nathan comes to the palace, and Nathan says, hey, David, I got a story for you. So listen to my story. Everybody likes to hear a good story. And Nathan says, here's my story. My story is about a rich man and a very poor man, a peasant, right? Rich man has, has you know, all of this stuff. He's got all of the, you know, the livestock and the beautiful house and the nice clothes. And, 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 and then the poor man has nothing except one little lamb. And this lamb was his treasure. They, his family named this lamb. This, this lamb was, was everything the family had. And you remember perhaps the story. The story goes like this. The rich man one day was throwing a, a huge party. The rich man was wanting to entertain his friends. Um, the rich man decided that the appropriate meal for the evening would be the poor man's lamb. I mean, he had a lot of stuff on his own, but he went, he stole the poor man's lamb, had it slaughtered, fed it to his guests. That's a sad story. It's a story of injustice. And Nathan, after he finishes the story, says, hey, David, what do you think should be done to the rich man? What do you think would be the appropriate punishment for that rich man? David said, his life should be taken. And Nathan says, you are that man. You are that man. David repents. He's brokenhearted. That is where the change begins. The repentance begins, where David begins to once again, after seeking forgiveness with all of his heart, to move forward and repair the damage from his sin. Parables are like this, and good parables cause this shift. Bible parables are, are filled with the Holy Spirit and cause an impact. So Jesus, as he's telling us parables in the New Testament, don't think that these are like little interesting things to make his, his teaching, his sermons less boring or something. Don't think that these are just little tricks to keep people's attention. When Jesus tells a parable, it is an IED, right? I mean, he has buried it there, and he is wanting his audience to step right on that thing so that he can blow up the way they see the world and begin to introduce them to a new world, the world as God sees it. Last week, last week, right before Thanksgiving, right before I was about to head out of town, and I think a lot of us were, or were getting ready to kind of go into Thanksgiving mode. I was here at the office, and so I'm back in my, in my office. I'm working on my computer, and I heard the most awful racket um, and I thought it was coming from Barbara, my secretary's. I thought it was coming from her office. I, it sounded like, I mean, it sounded like, like she took like a microwave oven and just like dropped it. And it went boom, boom, boom. Or maybe, and I didn't know how this could happen, but maybe like one of these big file cabinets that she has in her office, like, like it had somehow um, toppled over. It sounded bad. And then a few seconds later, 
I'm thinking maybe I ought to get up and check that out. A few seconds later, I hear Barbara. And she says, oh my. Oh my. Oh my. At that point, I go, I go jogging into her office. I'm like, what happened? And she just points out the window. And here at the corner of Preston and Preston Crest, there has been quite an accident. Quite an accident. Um, I mean, it's, it's bad. I think you can see a picture of it there. Um, and it's kind of smaller, but one of the cars is actually flipped on its side. And as we looked out the window, both of the cars are like smoking. And you're wondering, you know, is everybody okay? And Barbara called 911. And so I went down there to, to check it out, see what was going on and everything. And but when I got down there, Gary Cohorn, our singles minister, was already down there. Um, and the police had not arrived yet. Uh, the, the fire department not arrived, the ambulance hadn't arrived yet or anything like that, but first responders were on the scene. And they were unlikely first responders. There were these, these three guys, um, and they were, they were, they looked like gangbangers, as they call it. I mean, they looked like guys, the roughest guys that, that I could imagine, these three guys. Um, one of them, the leader of, of this trio of guys, was about six foot five, tattooed all the way up his body, up his neck. He had this, this mohawk. And when I went to talk to this guy a few minutes later, um, I introduced myself and he said, hey, my name is Jay. His, his mouth was full of like gold mixed in with his teeth. I'm not even sure how they crammed that much gold into his mouth. And his pants, of course, were like down here, right? I mean, you could see his underwear. He had underwear, by the way. But, but his, pants, his pants were like pulled down there. And this guy was fired up. I mean, he was excited, and he started telling me what happened. Because I'm like, what happened? And he said, well, me and my buddies, we were driving north on Preston. We heard this crash behind us. We turned around, came through the parking lot over there at Preston Place, swung around, jumped out of the car. I saw this one car flipped over. Both of the cars were smoking. I thought, you know, we watch TV. We watch movies. I thought something was going to blow up. So he said, I I decided I needed to get the person out of that car that was flipped over. The other car, the guy had gotten out and was kind of walking around like this, right? Well, I got up on the side of the car, and I pulled this lady, the only passenger in the car, the driver of the car, I pulled this lady out of the car. We got her safe. And and as he's telling me this story, he looks over and he realizes that she only made it out with one of her flip-flops, all right? They have her sitting under a tree kind of resting until her husband gets there, until the the police can get there and everything. She's resting. And so he says, hang on just a second. He goes, he climbs back on top of the car and dives in, disappears for about 30 seconds, comes out holding her other flip-flop. And so he gives that to her, and she puts it on her feet, on her foot, I'm sorry. And we talked for a few minutes, and then Brian Dagowitz, one of our police officers who's here today um, at Preston Crest, was working the scene. You can ask him to verify the details of this, but, but it, was, it, was, it was quite a scene. Nobody was hurt. Everybody was okay, thanks to, thanks to these young men, and Jay, this leader of the pack. Now... Some folks looking at the scene would have thought either, number one, these guys were involved in the accident in some way, 
probably the cause. Or B, these guys showed up at the accident thinking maybe they could make off with a purse or some stuff because they look like the kind of guys that might do that. But instead, they were the heroes. They saw someone in distress. They felt like they could do something to help. Truth is, I don't know anything about Jay. I don't know anything about his two buddies. Um, But I know this, you can't judge a book by its cover. They were the ones who cared for their neighbor in distress. They were the ones who were the hands and feet of Jesus in that moment. I know nothing about their religion, but they were the hands and feet of Jesus in that moment. They chose to be inconvenienced. They chose to put themselves in danger so they could help. So it's an easy, easy thing to judge by appearances. God alone sees what's really going on. God alone sees into the hearts of men and women, and he invites his children to see with his eyes. He invites us to see things differently, to give people benefit of the doubt, and to generally care for our neighbors. Now, I believe that who you are will determine what you see. I believe that if you are at your core a child of God, that's how you see yourself. I am a child of God. If you see yourself as someone who has been rescued from darkness, brought to to light, you are someone who realizes you were desperate, you were lost, there was nothing you could do about it, and Jesus saved you, if you see that as being your identity then you will begin to see things differently. Who you are determines how you see things. And unless you realize your lostness, unless you realize your desperateness without God, and unless you begin to understand the indescribable love that God has toward people, his people, the people he made, then unless you get that stuff, your judgments will be fatally flawed. Right Now, if we're not aware of what God has done, if we're not aware of how God loves each and every person, the good ones and the bad ones, the people different from me, the people like me, unless I realize how much God loves them and how desperately lost I am without him, my judgments will be jaded. So, Luke chapter 10. Here we go. Won't take too long here, but Luke chapter 10. Here's the scene. A man comes to Jesus and asks Jesus a question. The only thing Luke tells us about this man is that he was an expert in the law. So what we know, and basically all we know is he knew his Bible, right? He knew his Bible. He probably more than knew the Bible. He also probably knew um, the different rabbinical teachings and interpretations of different scriptures. He was a, quote, expert in the law. And, G- and he, he comes to Jesus and he asks Jesus a great question. It's really a very good question. He asks Jesus in Luke chapter 10, verse 25, teacher, he asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? That's a good question, Right? I mean, if I could ask Jesus any question, I might ask this too, right? Jesus, what must a person do to be saved? What must a person do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus is like, verse 26, you tell me. You're the expert in the law. What do you think about it? 
Great response because the man says, all right, here, here's my take on it. To, to get eternal life, um, I need to, and then he quotes from the Old Testament. I need to love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. I need to love my neighbor as myself. Jesus says, A plus. That's why they call you expert in the law. You nailed it. You nailed it. But what the guy really wants here is not the right answer. What he wants is a version of the right answer that makes him feel better about himself, that makes him feel more secure in his chances to inherit eternal life. That's what he wants. And so Luke records this in verse 29, the man wanting to justify himself, then asked Jesus, remember he's a lawyer, then he asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? Lawyers like answers. Lawyers want to define terms. Lawyers want to know that they're talking about the same thing. So Jesus, your turn. Who is my neighbor? And you and I, when we encounter this text, I think it's Who is my neighbor? My church family? Um, my neighbors, literally, in the Prestonwood Homeowners Association? Um, perhaps North Dallas, those are my neighbors, geographically speaking, or perhaps the whole Metroplex. Who, who are my neighbors? That's what, the, that's what the expert in the law asks. Well, Jesus knows that in order to help this man see as God sees, he's going to have to put this IED under his feet. He's going to have to take this guy out of his world, a world of theory, a world of theology, And he is going to have to transport this guy into a world of ambulances and emergency workers. He's going to have to bring this guy into a world where the phone rings and what you hear on the other end is a very serious voice saying, there's been an accident. There's been an accident. He's got to interrupt this guy's world. This is what he, he, he does. So he tells a story. You know the story. I know the story. It happened on the way between Jerusalem and Jericho. Man was making this journey when he was jumped, when he was mugged, right? These thieves came out of nowhere, and before they took all of his stuff, which they did, they beat him within an inch of his life. Right? So as the thieves exit the scene, there he is in a bloody pulp, life slowly bleeding away, eyes nearly swollen shut. He's dying. He's dying. But a few minutes later, hope, as through one of his swollen eyes, he sees a figure approaching on the road. Hope burns even brighter when he sees, given the garments that this man is wearing, he is a temple priest. Now there's a chance. I'll get the help I need. I'll make it back to my wife and kids. 
But the priest, you know the story, walks to the other side of the road. Don't make eye contact. Just goes right on, right on by. A few minutes later, same song, second verse. This time, he sees another figure approaching. This time, it is a Levite. Another professional in the service of God. Another worker from the temple in Jerusalem. The place where the very presence of God, it is believed by Jews, resides. And so the Levite comes, and you know the story. He also walks on the other side of the road, picks up his pace, gets right on by the bleeding and dying man. Why didn't they help? You know, there's all kinds of speculation Preachers love this part of the sermon where they get to speculate. We really don't know. I mean, was it that they were late for some sort of really important appointment? Was it that they would be ceremonially unclean by touching this guy? (laughs) Was it that they thought, well, maybe the the crooks are still around here and this is all a trap in order to get me? I mean... (laughs) Was it that um, they thought, well, I can't really help. I'm not a doctor. I'm sure the next person that walks by, busy highway here, I'm sure the next person that walks by will be better qualified to help, or I'm sure the Judean highway patrol will be by any minute to help this guy. I don't know what they thought. What I know is they didn't help. That's what Jesus tells us. They kept walking, right? And then the Samaritan or as we know him, the good Samaritan. He comes walking up, and he didn't walk on past. He did what he could. He tears off some of his robes, improvises them into bandages, uses some oil and some wine to dress the wounds. When he's kind of got the guy stabilized, the bleeding has, has, has stopped, he gets him onto his donkey, He takes him up the road, finds the first motel he comes across, and then delivers the man into the care of the innkeeper with enough funding to provide for his immediate needs and the promise, I will be back. On my way back to Jerusalem here in a few days, I will be back, and I will cover whatever other additional expenses you incur, right? And that's his role in the story. It's a great story. And Jesus, after he has involved them in the story, ends up asking his own question. You asked me to define neighbor. Now, now I'm going to ask you. In the story I just told, and you know there are three options. There's a Levite, there's a priest, there's a Samaritan. It's kind of multiple choice question, fairly easy. In the story I just told, who is the neighbor? Choice A, priest. Choice B, Levite. Choice C, Samaritan. You tell me, who's the neighbor in this story? Jews hated Samaritans. They just did. I mean, there, there may have been some imaginary reasons they hated Samaritans. There may have been and probably were some real reasons they didn't like Samaritans. But they really hated Samaritans. Well, the legal expert is not about to say, see, Samaritan. 
but he knows the right answer. It was not a hard question. And so he says, I suppose the man who had mercy on him. That was the neighbor. Now, the traditional VBS telling of the parable of the Good Samaritan goes like this. This is a story about stopping to help someone. This is a story about how what God wants you and I to be helpers when we see someone in need. And there's some truth to that. But I wonder, was Jesus really trying to get us to see that we should help people? Obviously, God wants us to help people, okay? And if Jesus just wants to tell me, Gordon, you need to help people, why does he go and make the priest and the Levite the good guys or the bad guys? They were the good guys. They turn out to be the bad guys. And the bad guy who's the Samaritan turns out to be the good guy. Why does he do that? Why is he so provocative in the story if he just wants us to help people? Maybe, just maybe... This is a story about helping this legal expert to see that the Samaritan was a neighbor. And that the Samaritan was a pretty good neighbor. Maybe that's what he wanted the legal expert to see. Perhaps it was about knocking over our tendency to classify people to prejudge or otherwise judge people and to put them into our categories of good, bad, medium. Could it be that Jesus just wanted the legal expert and us to see that Samaritans bear the imprint of God's image in their hearts? Maybe hard to see sometimes, but they do. Samaritans or gangbangers or whoever else you may come across, that they bear the image of God on their hearts. And remember how the whole conversation started. It started with that excellent question. What must I do to be saved? Or, or in his words, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? That's how it, it started. That's, that's an important question. And maybe Jesus is also telling us that we cannot answer a question like that and divorce being saved getting saved, being right with God. We cannot divorce that from the question of how we respect and love other people, especially other people who are different. Talk about bad judgment being expensive. I mean, Jesus says when he's answering that question, Your your eternal destiny is on the line if you don't get this down. If you don't see that loving God, yes. Loving your neighbor, yes. And by the way, your neighbor may be wearing a burqa. Your neighbor may have tattoos on his knuckles. 
Well, Jesus came to shift our priorities and our perspective so that we see the real worth of things. People matter to God. And you matter to God. You matter to God. Now, you may be thinking, Gordon, this is, this is dangerous. I mean, because a lot of times, my judgments are right. A lot of times, that person really can't be trusted. A lot of times, that person really does turn out. I, I make my initial judgment. It turns out to be right all the time. Well, I'm with you. It is dangerous to make this shift with Jesus. Being a disciple is a dangerous thing. This is a risky thing. That's why Jesus oftentimes in his ministry is telling people, you think you want to follow me. I don't know that you understand the cost of following me. I mean, to bring God's grace and God's mercy, to refuse to judge, to be charitable in the way I see others, even when I would have naturally distrusted them, that can be a dangerous proposition. But we're called as his disciples to bring his love into a world that is so jaded and prejudiced and broken. But spiritually, you you were lying on the side of the road. I mean, you, you were dying. You were in a desperate situation. And Jesus did not walk by. He stopped. And he healed. And he carried you along with him. 